Hey everyone, Dr. C sure gets around and we're thankful for the opportunities he gets to share his ideas with others. Like recently, he was invited to speak at Duke University's Race Workshop and talk about his book chapter on Black Panther titled Black Panther, Colonialism, and Racial Hybridity. I mean, how cool is that? Some people work their dream job. Uh, the rest of us just get to watch, I guess. Well, a recording of that speaking engagement was made, but unfortunately, the audio from that is so rough. Y'all are not going to want to sit through that. It's a shame because it was really fantastic. So pop on over to his TikTok or Instagram and tell Dr. C, you know, he needs to learn how to record better audio at these things. <clears throat> Anyways, luckily, he was also invited to talk about critical studies on the Superhero Ethics podcast. It was a fantastic discussion, and we included a good chunk of it here for you to enjoy. In it, they talk about interfaith families, the space traders, the origins of critical studies, plastic representation, how your friendships can fight stereotypes, how chicken processing can shape a family, how X-Men can help you get friends, super crips and disability representation, Toph from The Last Airbender, and of course, Black Panther. I know, there's a lot, but if you will, please join me as we listen in to Superhero Ethics. As our fandoms are getting so much more diverse, which is great, and or I think have always been diverse, but we're seeing that more and being better represented, I, I've, that's one of the things I've loved most about your analysis is your own kind of personal introspection of what does it mean to be a person of color interacting with this stuff and, and, and holding those two identities together instead of like one, as you said, kind of submerging the other, whatever that would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Uh one of the things that we have to, uh, there, there, there's two ideas that we have to hold in our minds when we're talking about this sort of stuff um, that are seemingly at odds, but also very much the reality. Mm -hmm. and, and one is that our, our modern pop fiction, fantasy, science fiction, that sort of stuff is very much rooted in the voices of the white folks who uh, invented the genre or were at least formative in it. So we talk about right. like Mary Shelley being the beginning of science fiction, uh, or you look at the other people like um, C.S. Lewis or uh, J.R. Tolkien, who, you know, pretty much started modern fantasy as we understand it now, things right. like that. And in that discourse, there's people like, you know, um, Octavia, uh, Octavia Spencer, uh, wait, David Butler, Butler, excuse me. I get her mixed up with the <laughs> actress. Pardon me. Octavia Butler. Um, as well as, you know, even someone like Derek Bell, who is the founder of Croak Race Theory, also wrote science fiction, uh, at least one story called The Space Traders, um, which is read it when you can, like, come down a little bit that day because <laughs> right. it's, it's heavy. Um, the basic premise of that story is aliens show up and offer to solve all of the United States' problems with uh, their economy, with uh, food shortage, with the environment, if they give... Uh, the aliens, all of the, all of the black folk in the United States, uh, spoilers, not a great ending. Um, mm -hmm. and he was making a point about privilege and things like that, uh, and, and race and, and sociocultural systems. So, but all these different things that go into it. And so like we have historically centered 
the white voices of people like Frank Herbert or uh, Heinlein or, you know, even Ursula K. Le Guin, who was writing, yeah. you know, stories that were very subversive at the time in terms of race and gender, but were still from it, that sort of perspective, uh, which I, I love the, the Earthsea stories, right? They're right. awesome. Um, but also, you know, there, there's those sort of themes as well. So at the same time, one of my favorite stats to throw out is that in like 1935, so we're talking like the height of the Depression. There were roughly 133 million people in the United States, give or take, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there were about 100 million comics in circulation annually throughout the 1930s. Right. You don't get that kind of circulation and readership without a wide variety of people reading these things. And the fact is, in terms of comic books, they were being consumed so readily in large part because they were easy to read. They were written in a way that was accessible to people who didn't have a great Mm -hmm. uh, education, as well as the use of the visual representation made it much more accessible to people who struggle with literacy, but also people who may have had learning disabilities or things like that. So like they were read by so many people. That's why in the 1950s, you get this like concern about the threat of comic books on the social psyche, not just with kids, but overall American the society. The code and all that. Absolutely. And the, you know, the seduction of innocent and Frederick Wortham and all that kind of stuff in the 1950s. Um, so there's always been, and along with that, there's always been political messaging. There's always been critical ideas. So even when the voices were largely shaped by white Americans, they were still dealing with power dynamics and that kind of thing. Um, one of my uh, other favorite examples is like, so Captain America, right, mm-hmm. was created by uh, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, Jewish American uh, um, uh, creators who were also white Americans as well with that conditional whiteness of Judaism, right, right. Uh, of being Jews and th- what that does in terms of who's considered white and not, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's no coincidence that, you know, these guys, uh, a lot of them often change their last names to seem more, you know, American appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, dominant Stan Lee Stan Lee, of right. Stanley Liebritz, yeah right right or, or Kirby his last name wasn't Kirby it was something else and he abbreviated it to Kirby yeah. uh, to fit in and like issue number one is Cap punching Hitler and that's yeah. great however we also have to grapple with the fact that those early Captain America runs were profoundly racist and ableist and sexist and all kinds of things right yeah because again, like, cause you can have, and this gets to the broader theme, I think, of what we would like to discuss. And that is that you can critique a thing and acknowledge its merits while also recognizing that there are some real flaws here. Yeah. Right. Um, some of the early villains in the Captain America comics were corrupt, uh, corporate industrialists, right? Like the original Red Skull was a, de- uh, Department of Defense contractor who made airplanes, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, who adopted the moniker of the Red Skull. Um, and you know, he would turn out to be a Nazi sympathizer in that same issue because you would have like two issues of Captain America, two stories in a single, uh, printed issue because they were like 50 pages long was a story where the villains are Nazis who are also like circus performers. Like I think there were Omar and Sando and Sando was a little person with, with, uh, apparently psychic powers or at least was claiming to have them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have like the further vilification of people who do not look normative. Right. In that way. So there's a lot to unpack there. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I I love all you're starting with because it kind of feels like we're diving into the using of the critical theory and we'll we'll get to step back and divide, uh, define terms in a second. But I want to kind of go a little more of that because for me as a person who my own religious 
belief today is not Judaism, it's, it's Christianity, because I come from an interfaith home. But I came from, you know, my father's Jewish, his family's been Jewish. And one thing that, like, I've really been reckoning with in, in kind of coming to understand with that is sort of thinking of how, like, today my Judaism does not, I am, I am white, I am un, unquestionably white, my Judaism does not affect that at all. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was not really white. My father had to hide his Judaism in some ways from, sure. like, you know, uh, applying to college and stuff like that. And it's been, and like, I, there's been some great scholarship on the Jewish origins of a lot of these stories at mm-hmm. a time when Jews were definitely being treated better than a lot of people of color, for sure. But like, I, like I don't know if this is true with Kirby, but I know the, the creators of uh, Superman, for example, you know, went into comics in part because they wouldn't get hired by more traditional yeah. publishing or things like that. And, and yeah, Superman is, I think, a very similar thing. Like, his first villains are a corrupt landlord mm-hmm. and a corporate executive who's trying to bust a union yeah. and a guy who's who's uh, committing domestic assault against his, his partner. And and so there's a lot of that great stuff. And then also a lot of really terrible stuff in, you know, yeah. in sim- same ways that like, you know, all the stuff that's coming out today, we can see as being like great advances, but have some problem with it. And I'm sure 50 years from now, People will look at what we think of as like some like to me, Shira, the animated show. I don't know if you've ever. Oh saw yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Some of the best representation I've ever seen. Everything from like the queerness to the racial diversity to, for myself as someone who deals with uh, mental illness issues, uh, having a character who very clearly has borderline, which is what I have, which is very often stigmatized, and her journey being seen as a worthy one. Like the representation of it blew me away. Mm-hmm. I'm sure in 50 years they'll be like, oh my God, Shiro was so all these things that were terrible. You know, it's, sure. it's how we advance. Um, but, but we're kind of giving people an appetizer for all that. Let's kind of step back a bit and just say, so what is critical theory? Because I think for a lot of people, either they'd never really heard of it or as I was for a while, it just sounds like, oh yeah, we're being, we're not just saying, wow, that lightsaber fight was really cool. We're saying, let's look in depth. Sure. And then now, of course, a lot more people have heard of it because it's suddenly be critical race theory has suddenly become the thing to get villainized and all this terrible stuff. And um, my listener base, I think, is there's no one in my listener base who's going to be like, oh, critical race theory, bad, bad, bad. I've pretty leftist around here. Sure. But but just to kind of give go, to help frame it, because I think a lot of people either have no idea what it is or have gotten a very one sided perspective. What is critical theory and how does it apply to media? Okay. So, before I get into that, I do want to say one thing that sort of coincides with what you just said, and that is oh, that go for it, yeah. my, my perspective, and what I like to say is that progress is a series of problematic steps forward. Uh, uh, and if we can reconcile with that, we can understand that it's everything and everything, right? One text is not going to liberate everybody, uh, but if we can take the good, we can move that forward and then leave behind the bad for the next iteration, right? Um, and talking about a, a, a your faith practice. I'm Catholic. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have the concept of the church militant, which means that life is a struggle and that's really all there is until you die, Uh, which is great and positive. (laughs) But, but the point being the churn, the struggle, that's the point now. Right. Uh, And I think it's the same thing with academia and scholarship. So, so then let's transfer this into the, the critical theory aspect. So critical theory, I need to understand just in, in, if I can condense, um, a century and a half of, of scholarship into just some quick blurbs. Uh, you have uh, Marx and Engels, right? The development of Marxism, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. which we see uh, be used for the uh, for some things like the the Russian Revolution uh, and all the the uh, liberatory, but also horrific things uh, that yeah. happened in that event. And then 
immediately after that, you have you know some other uh, efforts as well at uh, application of, of Marx in a in a militant, violent way, uh, and then you have the Frankfurt School in Germany, who were developed, uh, I want to say, in the nineteen teens um, up through about the nineteen thirties. Uh, many of whom were Jewish, uh, and a lot of those fellows were like, "Well, that revolution was horrifying." We need to find a way to not reproduce oppressive systems through revolution. Let's let's talk about this. And so this gives rise to what we refer to as like neo-Marxism. And neo-Marxism is where we talk about like the ideas of the ruling class, which is something that Marx talked about. But instead of focusing on the material consequences of wealth and, and what have you that Marx was concerned with, looking at things like how do ideas, how do ideologies, and that ideology is just a fancy word for a worldview. How do those spread throughout society? How do they um, sort of propagate certain ideas? Uh, this mm-hmm. process, this fancy word that we like to throw around called interpolation, which is being uh, internalizing an ideology such that you are then brought into a position of supporting the ideology. Uh, whether that's positive or negative, it can often be used in a negative way. Um, so we get these sort of ideas coming about in the 1920s and 30s through the Frankfurt School. A lot of them leave Germany because of the Nazis. They see the writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're like, well, it's time to get out of Dodge. And a, not all of them, but a lot of them come to the United States. Um, people like uh, like Theodore Adorno, for example, uh, comes to the U.S. Um, and at the same time, you also have uh, people like Antonio Gramsci, who was arguing for this idea of uh, who was a, a Italian socialist labor organizer who was trying to bridge the gap between the academics and the working people right. for to create a some degree of a worker solidarity and, and social solidarity. And, of course, he was imprisoned by Benito Mussolini and died in prison. Um, and he wrote what's referred to as the prison notebooks, which is, a, you know, an interesting text to read. And he said the, ter- the term that he coined and always you got to bear in mind that these are these ideas are almost never original to the people who co- who coined the terms. Right. It's that they have a way of synthesizing it in a way that folks can then access. And his idea was hegemony and hegemony is the dominant ruling idea or, or norms or set of ideas. And it's important to understand that a hegemony is not good or bad. It merely right. is. Every society has to have a hegemony, right? There has to be a hegemonic structure to have a unified society. And, and, Part of Gramsci's point was that, well, it shouldn't necessarily be the ideas of the ruling class. It should be the proletariat. It should be the working class ideas that shape society and move us forward. What does that have to do with movies and whatnot? Well, if we take that and we understand like the neo-Marxists in Frankfurt were concerned about the, pro- the propagation of ideas. And I toss about Adorno in particular because I have a bone to pick with him. <laughs> Mostly that like he was one of these guys who was like, yeah, you have to be worried about authoritarian perspectives and that kind of thing because that gives rise to Nazis. But also pop culture is illegitimate. <laughs> uh, Gramsci the same way was like, you know, the reason we have so much crime is because of these Sherlock Holmes novels. <laughs> like, it's like, all right, y'all. I, I, I mean, having lived through the age of video games are going to cause all the problems. Right. It's nice to know that blaming pop culture for society's problems is uh, not unique to Nintendo and PlayStation, but actually goes way back before that. Uh, it was it was either Socrates or Aristotle or Plato or one of them that said, you know, the problem with writing things down is that the young people are going to forget how to remember things. It's like, oh, this is just that time-honored tradition of older folks hating young people. Younger people stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Literacy, who's got time for writing? Anyway, so, um, and so forth and so on. So, uh, but Adorno was like, you know, the only legitimate music is classical music and whatnot. It's like, okay, calm down. Um, 
So when we look at the movies that we have now, we have to understand some very obvious things. And that is that movies don't naturally exist, right? right. There's no free range Hulu originals out in fields for us to go harvest, right? Every production, whether that's a TV show, a play, a whatever, a music, a piece of song, a music, whatever, is the result of human in- endeavor, which means it is artificial, which means it, it, it comes from a human mind. And right. whether we like to admit it or not, everything that comes out of our brain is subject to the values that we hold. We might be working in opposition to those values, but they're still informed by those values. We might be trying to deconstruct some things still informed by whatever it is we're trying to move through. Not to mention all the ways in which we have ideas that we endorse through, um, through the creation act itself. Mm-hmm. So if we understand then that um, every every movie, every TV show is an idea that was that came about from somebody. We also have to recognize that it came about through power structures because you and I can do this, and this is pretty ground level stuff. Although we do need to recognize that we one uh, can afford to do this on a Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock. Yep. Right. Two, we have the technological ability to do so. Yep, right? which is also a privilege in terms of the expense of it. Absolutely. And three. Uh, we can, we have the editorial decision of whether or not to publish this, right? right? Which is some degree of power there. So even at its most basic roots, we still have to reckon, we still have to grapple with power structures here, but at its uh, highest places, Hollywood, uh, you know, broadcast networks, cable news, whatever else, even more so, right? The stuff it, as I've heard yeah. uh, a million times, it's a wonder anything ever gets made because of all these steps you have to go through, all the hoops right. you have to jump through, all the people that have to greenlight it, right? Whatever project it happens to be. To, to put in context, like, you and I can choose to make a podcast. Mm-hmm. I can come up with a really good idea for a $500 million movie that I think will be a much better representation of things. Yeah. I can't make, I can't get that done. And neither Absol- can you probably, you know? No, absolutely, right? Because we don't have access to those social institutions, right? Yeah. Um, but if Marvel ever wants to hire me, I have a price. It is roughly <laughs> the size of my student loan debt, and I have no problem. Like, <laughs> I have integrity to a point. No. <laughs> because we have to live in the system. No. But the, 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 the thing is, like, basically, I say all that to say this. Every Marvel movie, every DC movie, every whatever movie is the idea of someone who comes from a ruling class. Even if the writers are from marginalized perspectives, we have right. to recognize that they can only do this with the consent of someone who is a part of the ruling class or classes, however we choose to organize right. them, right? So, and this is why, so I was at a, at a conference recently where we were discussing this idea of what's called plastic representation. And this is a, a, t- a term coined by uh, Dr. Kristen Warner, uh, who is a African-American woman who who argues that plastic representation is when you have representation of a marginalized person uh, or of a, of a particular demographic. In this case, she was talking about black women, but of a marginalized person or demographic uh, in a way that is broadly accurate, but lacks cultural specificity. The example she used is there was a movie starring Viola Davis where I forget the name of the movie, but they used a, the score involved a song by Nina Simone. Nina Simone mm-hmm. being a obvious icon of black music, right? And so, yes, that that audio signifier of blackness that is Nina Simone resonates with the audience to reinforce the blackness of the character, right? right. However, that's probably not realistic to the character as they exist in the narrative. Right. 
the character being a black woman of a certain age in a certain setting. It knows who Nina Simone is, obviously, but it's probably more inclined towards other more contemporary music of the time. Right. Right. And so what they're doing then in that musical choice is trading cultural specificity, which is going to resonate with a much smaller audience, but in a more meaningful way for something that broadly recognizes blackness and is easily recognizable to a audience, you know, and has a broader thus marketing. Right. Right. So remember, this was a topic that got talked about a lot when um, Luke Cage and uh, the first Black Panther movie came out at similar times. Mm -hmm. And both of those creators were talking about how important it was to show a diversity of experience of either the black experience in Harlem or of experience in this fictionalized African country. Because, yeah, 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 you're getting that specificity of, of it's not just here's the one character who comes from X group who speaks for that entire group and is meant to be the representation of everything in that group. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and, and Dwayne McDuffie, the, the famous comic book writer, said, you know, the hard part about writing a character of color, and I'm paraphrasing, is the hard part about writing a character of color is that they don't get to just be an individual. They have to be a symbol for everybody else. Right. Yeah. And so Warner's point with plastic representation is that when we engage in that sort of mass appeal, ma- almost like manufactured um, uh, abstract uh, representation. Yeah, it's better than the tokenism. It's better than, uh, you know, lesser forms and stereotypes and tropes and what have you. But also, like, we can't, it, it's almost unreasonable to expect these major productions to have cultural specificity because, first and foremost, they're in the business of staying in business. Right. right? And so, going back to critical theory, mm-hmm. uh, we are looking at how, do, how does power factor into this? And Within that, you have all kinds of things like um, neo-Marxist uh, critique, which has to do with like labor and value and mm-hmm. social standing and worth, as well as you have race, critical race dis- uh, analysis, which is not the same as critical race theory, um, uh, which also looks at how race is constructed. What I think the scholar Lisa Flores talks about race making, right, mm-hmm. uh, through mass mediated texts and how we construct stuff. Uh, and then we have like feminists and all that, and the list goes on and on, but all of it right. has to do with the analysis of power and how that factors into these depictions. So yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, all. sorry. No, no, it's, it's awesome. And I know that you're basically take, like, I'm sure that like intro to critical theory could be a like, you know, full semester class and I'm asking you to sum it up in, in a few minutes, but, but if I understand it, so what we're basically talking about is that critical theory is going into the analysis of a thing, and in this case, media, with an awareness and an understanding of all the power dynamics that are happening both within the world of the story, that like these characters exist in that world, but that also all the factors that go into the creation of it in terms of the perspectives, the perspectives, not just of the writer and the director, but also the producer and the people who greenlight the checks and mm-hmm. the movie studios and all of that that we need to be aware of all of those factors and, and use that lens of analysis when discussing that. Is that, is that somewhat of a layman's definition? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's entirely, yeah, that's, that's accurate. And my work in particular is concerned with the symbolic depictions on screen. I don't concern myself with the productions because that's its own thing. Right. Uh, right. I mean, the two are intimately connected. Don't get me wrong, but from an academic perspective about what I can cover in a research article right i concern myself with like what's happening on screen i don't even really concern myself with the audience Mm. because audience analysis is again its own thing and we could talk about like there's a article that i like to cite all the time um that is a 
it's called a mental models approach to uh, Latino representation or something along those lines by Dana Mastro uh, came out in like 2007, 2008, but talks about how like law and order and uh, CSI and all those other procedural crime shows consistently use um, Latinos in the background as not even like the episode villain, but just mm-hmm. villains in general, they're gangsters right. or they're, you know, criminals of some sort and how like, personal relationships like having meaningful friendships with latinos can help reduce the likelihood of buying into those uh stereotypes as being Mm. accurate however it's worth noting that is a reduction not an elimination yeah so then audience analysis becomes its own thing so you have you have the production uh, uh analysis you have the actual textual analysis which is what i do and then you have like the audience analysis and we consider all of these things when doing you know our, our research but usually i focus on the actual textual uh right stuff yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. so i'm really glad we kind of get that definition and and i think that's gonna help really shape this whole conversation mm-hmm. and before that we turn to the more of the media i'd love to hear more about your own story because i think and, and i took us off on a tangent this is my fault but sure. what you said at the beginning about um your own interaction with geekiness and nerdiness and this content as and as it related to whiteness and your own uh, interactions with that as, as a Chicano person, mm-hmm. I, I'd love to hear more about that. Like now that we understand what critical theory is, how does how did critical theory play into your own kind of journey as a fan and where do you come to? Sure. So I'm I'm going to uh, couch that with a uh, ham-fisted paraphrase of Stuart Hall, who is uh, often attributed as being like sort of the, the founding father of cultural studies as we know it. Right. Uh, he was one of these guys who was like interested in these, uh, the neo-Marxist perspective, but being a, a, a black man from Jamaica was very keenly aware of the fact that no one else at the time, and this is we're talking like 1960s, 70s, was talking about race. And he's like, well, hold on a minute. If we're going to talk about the British Empire, we should talk about race. Anyway, um, he talks about one of his uh, articles, chapters, whatever, about how basically we have our identities sold back to us as marginalized people. And he was talking in the context of third cinema, which is films made by uh, marginalized communities and how we need more of that uh, because like part of diaspora, part of colonization has been the stripping away of identities. And then in a modern context, having those identities sold back to us through pop media. Right. Right. Keep that in mind with what I'm about to say. So I am Chicano. Uh, My mom is a white American uh, Southern woman. My father is a Mexican immigrant. I have uh, two dads. I have a birth father and my dad. My birth father, who I have not, I've had like two interactions with in my entire life mm-hmm. in the last 20 years, um, both of whom are from Mexico, roughly the same region of Mexico. Uh, and both, you know, uh, dark skinned uh, people of you know native ancestry, that kind of stuff. Um, in the when I was a kid. I was born in a town where Mexicans had been literally trucked in to work in Mm. uh, poultry processing plants, right? And my mom had been adamant about me learning to, you know, embrace Mexican culture, things like that. But when we left, uh, and I had already, by the time we left at the age of eight, I'd already separated, you know, from my birth father, things like that. Um, We moved to like Northern Virginia. We moved for about four, about four-ish years. I lived for a few months in Georgia with the thought that I was going to stay, ended up not, moved back to North Carolina where I am, where I'm from, and a few different towns, uh, you know, in the course of uh, three years. And my dad enters the picture when I'm about 11, 12 years Mm -hmm. old. And uh, 
the construction of my Latino identity has, there's often been gaps there. And, and to right. my mom's credit, did a lot to try to reinforce that at home. But I'm also dealing in primarily white spaces, uh, dealing with, you know, contemporaries and peers who are immersed in white pop culture. And also my mom, huge fan of things like, you know, Led Zeppelin and Dwight Yoakam. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm hearing like Vicente Fernandez and Los Tigres del Norte and, and Marco Antonio Solis at home alongside of like the Dixie Chicks and Dwight Yoakam and, and, <laughs> and whatever else. Right. Uh, so so I'm getting all those things together. And in so my, my white American perspective of myself is is pretty well formed. This is also where I get into things like the, the Hobbit at, at, in sixth grade. And I just never look back fantasy right. and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um but when I'm trying to construct my my Latino identity, I have next to nothing to fall back on, at least immediately right. accessible, right? Because this is the the 90s. Um, and so I've got the X-Men. And so Nightcrawler is who I often attribute a lot of my emotional resonance to because Nightcrawler was a demon who also was Catholic, and I'm Catholic, and so that, that jives. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you grow up in the South particular parts of the South, Catholicism is often demonized in a very literal sense. So I, I, I just want to tell this quick story. My, yeah. my mother's fam- my mother's family is Baptist from Texas. Yeah. Um, my mother and her sisters were born in upstate New York, but the family's all from Texas way yeah. back. Like we think Robert E. Lee, uh, we think Jefferson Davis might've been a direct descendant and there's some pride of that. All right. A couple generations back, which is a, a thing <laughs> to be yeah. sure. But uh, so my mother marries a Jewish man. Yeah, and the cat, the the um, Southern Protestant Baptist family is not very happy about this. Then her sister marries a Catholic, and that's ten times worse. Yeah, <laughs> and like my the, the two sisters clashed for a long time before my mother passed away about her being like my aunt being like at least I married a Christian. Why is this worse somehow? Right? But to Southern yeah. Catholic, Southern Baptists, like and. Yeah. The, 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 the clan was, the, the clan hated, uh, Catholics as much as anybody else. Uh, at least that, that second yep. wave iteration of it did. Yeah. So, um, I remember my mom's a convert and when she joined, uh, the, the Catholic church, one of her aunts said, I know you're a Catholic now, but I also know you still love Jesus. And I was like, I, I, <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway, anyway. So, but, uh, but Nightcrawler was also defined in many ways by trying to fit into society that would not allow him to. Right. right. Uh, in the, the X-Men evolution uh, cartoon, if you remember from like the early 2000s, mm-hmm. right? Nightcrawler it has a holographic watch, has a watch that projects a hologram where he appears as a white American male. Right. And as long as he kept his tail wrapped around his waist, no one could tell. And so it was that aspect of trying to buy his way in. And, right. s- and while certainly at the time I wasn't conceptualizing it in that way, that had a lot of resonance for me as a kid who was brown enough to be picked out of a crowd uh, and told, you know, go back to where you come from, all that kind of stuff, uh, who was told that Mexicans couldn't speak English as a matter of biological fact. Um, Jesus. Yeah. So, like, wanting to be a part of this world that I had some degree of birthright to by virtue of, you know, my mom's side of the family. Um and coming up against that barrier, like the narratives about people who were perpetual outsiders, mm-hmm. uh, despite even if they looked, even if you had like a Cyclops or a Jean Grey or whoever else uh, or Remy, because uh, Gambit was like the Southerner I wanted to be. Right. He was cool and could like talk to girls and stuff. In retrospect, Remy is really working through some things. <laughs> <laughs> The way he approaches women might not actually be the thing we want teenage boys to learn from. Like, but. It, it, yeah, 
the sort of cavalier attitude he has for other people's emotions at times, maybe not the most emotionally healthy thing. But again, as like an 11 year old, I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also he blows things up and that's awesome. Um, so that was the water I was swimming in. And so I, I bombed onto it in part because I had that emotional resonance of the outsider, but also because it was a way of, uh, it was a way of making friends. Right. People, right. And so going back to the idea of critical theory, I was internalizing the ideas of the dominant class of the, of the, mm. of the, the ruling governing ideas um, to have access to these right. systems and, and powers. And you might say, well, how, you know, the X-Men in particular is laden with ideas that are uh, counter uh, mainstream and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Kind of depending mm-hmm. on what version of the X-Men we're looking at, but also the ones that are subversive are still being filtered through that gatekeeping you know, folks who say yes or no to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that's such a, 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 just for yourself, I'm so glad that 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 was able to help you reframe that journey, help you reframe that understanding. But I think it's one that like, and I promise we will get to talk about some of the stories, uh, but just as content creators, I think that's so helpful because Mm -hmm. like for me, one of the most powerful kind of learning moments I have had was early when I was getting started and I was first trying to think about like who could be guests on the podcast beyond my like regular co-host. And I went to a a fantastic con in um, Wisconsin. It's called um, WISCON. Uh, For anyone who's ever in the Midwest, I strongly recommend it because it's it's specifically feminist based. It does all kinds of great analysis. Um, And one of the people I I heard was a black woman who had some fantastic things to say and and made a joke about like, I'd love to be on more podcasts. So I went up to her and I approached her and said, yeah, I would love to get you on my podcast. And she said, okay, sure. Just don't ask me to come on and talk about anything black. And Hmm. happily, I didn't ever have to say this, but I I realized, yeah, my first thought was, I'd love to ask you to come on and talk about Black Panther or about Luke Cage or, and, and it wound up, she came on and talked about something completely different that had some people of color in it, but that wasn't the focus in any way. But it really caught me out because it, it, it showed me for myself that I had that idea of like, oh, yeah, it's fine for me as a white person to talk about all this stuff. But if it's a more people of color story, then I need a more people of color guest, you know. And I, I, actually, as I say that, I kind of like – I do think it's important to get diverse voices, especially when talking about those kind of things. But when it becomes the flip side of, oh, yeah, you get the gay guest to come on only to talk about the gay thing, like that's just another kind of this like limitation of – you are a person who has this identity that you're defined by, by the Uber culture. And so therefore everything you do should be about that. And I'm, I don't know if you've had that where people like are only kind of asking you to come talk about things as a Chicano person. But, but I think it's a big, I think critical theory helps me to better understand that the Jews who make, even who our guests are can factor into that. So I, I have, I have two thoughts related to that. Um, and one of them is like, just briefly, the, um, one of my concerns about the discourse surrounding who gets to play what kind of characters in movies and TV shows, we need mm-hmm. X person to play this character because that character is from a certain demographic and we need someone from that demographic. Obviously that is a meaningful part of the more dimensional representation of these characters. My concern though, is that at some point that becomes these actors only play these characters yep. because the need is rarely as broad as we would like for it to be right right like if you only have uh if you only have let's say because it, it common in zeitgeist is like you only have uh jewish actors play jewish characters for example i would be concerned that that becomes weaponized as well you only have jewish actors when you need jewish characters 
Right. If that makes any sense. But so when we talk about like the, the centralizing of an identity, that is one of those things that's kind of always in the back of my mind. That yeah. being said, you do need, you know, meaningful representation. I don't want to knock that. Um, the, but going back, the other thing though is I get asked a lot about Latinx studies. Uh, mm-hmm. and that is part of what I've been formally trained in. But that's not my area of expertise. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I, I can talk competently about uh, Latin issues. I can talk competently about, you know, these sort of things, particularly related to identity and, and what have you. Because uh, certainly I've done a lot of the readings and, and all that kind of stuff. And I continue to do readings on that stuff. But in, in terms of like what my research is, my research is, is actually critical whiteness studies, mm-hmm. which is looking at how whiteness sort of is invisible and permeates so much of our pop culture, in particular in my area as opposed to other aspects of like education, what have you. Um, which means I know a little bit about things like, uh, uh, blackness or Asian identity or indigenous identity or Latinx identity, particularly as they are defined by whiteness, but that's not the same thing as being an expert in those respective areas. The other thing is most of my training has been informed by a unfortunate, side effect of uh, race uh, analysis being relatively new, and that is the black-white binary, where so much of our scholarship has to deal with whiteness and blackness. And don't get me wrong, those are absolutely things that we need even more of. At the same time, because there is a, um, because of the, the, I won't say politics, but like the aspects of producing academic work, that's also what's dominant out there. Right. Yeah. And so there's a, a lack of these other areas as well. Not to frame this as a we need more of this than of that, but just a we need more of everything. But we have the most of is stuff related to whiteness and blackness. I mean, to me, a lot of this comes down to why the kind of more critical discussions are so important, because like and I, I'm someone who uses TikTok and who uses Twitter and I love creating content on there. And, and this, I'm not saying this the, these things invented this, but I think, you know, when discourse is focused on a small number of characters or a small amount of time mm-hmm. yeah it's critical theory in a tweet is really difficult you know like yeah. Bump, yeah. you can't have a bumper sticker that's more than five lines and i think that's where a lot of the kind of somewhat binary approaches to these things that that i think often i think are really frustrating and often i want to go a lot deeper into um come into place and you know it, it's funny just because what you're saying just now also really tied into me with what you're saying about the specificity of identity. Because I remember there's another content creator who I follow, um, who I, I, I'm having trouble remembering who it was exactly. But I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes. But they're uh, also Chicano, mm-hmm. and they forgive me, Chicana, and they talked about how when In the Heights was a really big deal and there's a lot of discussion about it, they kept being asked like, "Well, what do you think about this? You're the expert," and had to be like, Wait, "No, no, I am, I am Chicana." Mm-hmm. That show is about like Caribbean immigrant to America, which yeah. yes, we're both under Latina like umbrella, but that experience is very different than mine. And and she, she had a lot of really good things to say about how she didn't feel like she was she was uh, uh, an expert on that because it felt like a very different experience. And I think that's yeah. that again reminds me of the kind of level of. It's really easier for us to see, okay, well, all brown people are going to have brown people thoughts and all black people can have very black people thoughts. I get this all the time. You know, I'm a disabled person. I have, I'm an amputee. So half of my life is lived in a wheelchair. Half of it's not. I have an important perspective there. But if you ask me to comment on someone, like when someone asks me to comment on Daredevil, I'll be very careful in saying, I have thoughts in general on disability awareness and why I think some parts of, of Daredevil are good and some parts aren't, but I'm not visually impaired. I'm not blind. Right. And so there's whole parts of the experience that I can't speak to. Yeah. And, and 
talking about disability in particular, there's also the phenomenon of what's referred to as the uh, the, the super crip, uh, the super mm-hmm. cripple stereotype, right? Yep. Where in the case of Daredevil, the blindness becomes the feature, not the bug, right? Yes. Uh, the, the disability, and we see this also with autism as well, right? Is yep. it, what was that movie, um, The Predator, I want to say? Uh, mm-hmm. that came out where they the plot line was basically you find out at the end autism is the next stage in human evolution or something along those lines which is kind of in the same vein as Rain Man and this idea yep. of the savant right which is supremely dehumanizing to people who are honestly just trying to live in uh, a day-to-day life um, yep. but get categorized as like oh you have autism you must you know be super intelligent this way and and you know you follow up people on TikTok that have autism they'll tell you uh, yeah I'm good at some things but also like yeah. Life is rough because it ain't made for people with autism, right? So you're either proving that you've really done the homework or that you've listened to a lot of the podcast. I'm sorry. You're either proving you've done the homework and listened to a lot of our back episodes or just that we think in similar ways because the topic of Daredevil's disability is one I've brought up all the time. And I'm contractually obligated to point out that part of this is why I think Toph is such a better disability representation. Toph from Avatar Last Airbender because she has superpowers that are connected to her disability, but it doesn't erase her disability the way you said it does. Like to yeah. me, um, but the other one I wanted to bring up because I think it's so relevant to so much of what we're talking about is, uh, I, I think is, I'm pronouncing this correctly, Alakwa Cox, the woman who plays Echo in the Hawkeye series, um, is, is one of my favorite examples of disability representation because it also ties into getting away from the, this character can only really play this kind of things. She yeah. is native and she is deaf, which is, mm-hmm. Not a huge actor pool, but they were able to find someone who was a very good actress. Mm -hmm. And as it happens, she's also an amputee in exactly the way I am. Sure. She is the best disability representation I've ever seen, in part because they don't give her this leg that has all these like super high gadgets. They show that she can move and do martial arts. I can't do the martial arts. She does, but she can. But there's a couple of moments in the show where they show her adjusting her leg or like the young girl version is like hiding her leg. Yeah. And they didn't write that character to be an amputee, but the actress was until they adjusted it. And there's just – I'm now tying together four different thoughts and probably just yeah. meandering. But the, the point being, that to me was a perfect example of the kind of thing I want to see of – it is very representative of what she's written as, but also the actress is representative of some things and they worked it into the story. So that's an excellent example for a couple reasons, especially uh, what you're talking about in terms of the disability informs the character, not becomes the redeeming value of the character. Yeah. Right. At the risk of making it seem like people who have these disabilities are um, have an easier life because of whatever we see on the screen. And you're right. They right. didn't do the they didn't give her the Tony Stark treatment. Right. Yeah. Of like giving her a Mach 6 uh, leg or something along those lines. Um, at the same time. Echo is canonically uh, indigenous, I believe she's Cherokee, but also Mexican. And we right. didn't get any of that Mexican Latinidad in the thing. At least not that I can recall. We saw her father, but we don't know anything about her mother necessarily. Mm-hmm. However, and this gets to the idea of like critical theory is hard to do in a tweet. Like we don't need to put that in a binary opposition of e- either this is good or this is bad. Right. right? We need to look for what are the redeeming values here. We can recognize that, okay, they didn't emphasize any sort of Latinidad. We don't even know if she's uh, Latina in the, or Chicana in the, in the show and as it's constituted in the text. That being said, there's a lot of really good here. Yeah. And that, that area where they didn't cover this particular thing can be used elsewhere. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, she's yeah. getting her own show, and I'm yeah. really excited. And and to me, it's also such a great way of how, like, to me, if you and I had a longer conversation about her character, which actually now I'd love to invite you back when we get to, to her show, yeah. I feel like there's so much of her character's experience that you can speak to in a way that I don't really understand. Mm-hmm. But that, I mean, I, I haven't seen your legs because I've only seen you from the chest up. I'm get, From what you said, I don't think you're an amputee. Um, I'm not. And I, so I think there's parts of her experience that I can speak to in ways that you cannot, you know, and that yeah. it doesn't make either one of us the definitive voice on her. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot, even me, a lot of my disability experience is very tied up mm-hmm. in race and things like that. And I think I have had a level of privilege of being access to the medical resources and the financial resources sure. that her character hasn't. So I'm not going to say that I have, uh, even my experience of being disabled is very different than hers, mm-hmm. both the actress and the character. But yeah, just, I think this is what is so important is that we were able to look at like, no one is just a black character or just a queer character or just yeah. a disabled character. Everyone has all of these different layers and, and complexities that all fit into these large societal areas. Right.